1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to be speaking to Dr. Al Coppolo. He's an associate professor of English at John uh, Jay College of Criminal Justice at the City University of New York. He's here to talk with us about a book published with Oxford University Press in 2016 called The Theater of Experiment, Staging Natural Philosophy in 18th Century Britain. Al, welcome to New Books Network.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much, Morteza. It is a pleasure to be on the line with you talking about my work. Thank you. Uh,
1: This was a fascinating book, Staging Natural Philosophy in 18th Century Britain. Before talking about the book, would you please introduce yourself, uh, tell us a little about your background, and more importantly, how you decided to come, how the idea of this book uh, came about?
0: Absolutely. So, uh, as you noted, I'm an associate professor at uh, John Jay College. And uh, I, you know, uh, as one does at a public university in in the States, we, we teach a lot of things, but my research specialty is. 18th century literature and culture, and a particular interest in the emergence of modern science. And so where did this project begin? It begins like, I would assume everybody's first book begins, uh, in, in the dissertation stage and planning things out. And I guess one way to answer that question would be a question. I'd been reading plays in my 18th century, um, Uh, theater class, and one particular play, Thomas Shadwell's uh, The Virtuoso, a a hard satire from 1676, absolutely hilarious, Uh, a gallery of fools that get skewered in this play, and one's a scientist, and this scientist, Sir Nicholas Gimcrack, he's a virtuoso, he's an amateur, he's a dilettante, he's he's proud, he's preening, Uh, he's utterly oblivious, completely absurd, and my question to myself was, what What's funny about this character? How? Why Why would one laugh at a scientist in, in at this time? Uh, we, we certainly all have various sort of ideas about, you know, uh, popular perceptions of scientists—the mad scientist, right? The 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 hubristic scientist, the Victor Frankenstein. But what's what's going on with this figure of a, a bumbling fool, uh, specifically at the time when? Uh, science as we understand it experimental natural philosophy the the actual product you know conducting of experiments collecting of 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 facts all of this is just kind of emerging in an episteme at this time why should that be funny and so that started me thinking about these problems um and I guess the structure of the book the problematics of it I think that became a little clearer when I sort of encountered a uh, a newspaper page. this is the Daily Post. It was published 7th of January in 1724 and right there at the top of the page as as was the you know the, the custom there were various advertisements for various um, shows and spectacles that were being put on in London and there was the expected sort of performance there at the Theatre Royale. The, the main th- uh, patent theater. Uh, They're running the fair Quaker of Deal that night, but they also had Harlequin Dr. Faustus, this sort of thrilling sort of spectacle uh, that was put on that night um, with a Dr. Faustus character, this sort of scientist slash magician. But then right next to that very advertisement, actually right below it, was an advertisement for um, a sort of uh, elite gathering uh, room, again in the elite west of town. Uh, the famous fox was going to present perform his most surprising tricks by dexterity of hand. There was a kind of latter-day sort of conjurer, sort of uh, um, uh, legend of main artist that would sort of uh, perform these stupendous spectacles of juggling and, 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 and delight. And trying to understand what's the relationship going on between this kind of performance, the 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 performance of Dr. Faustus going on in the public theater, and also the kinds of performances that would have been in the long room at the Opera House, at the Haymarket, the night before and the night after. Performances, for example, and again, this is exactly on the page, literally in the, the column next to it, uh, there's a notice for a course of experimental philosophy that was to be offered by John Theophilus de Saguier. Um And this was what now we look back and recognize, it seems like sort of science itself. This was kind of a popular science instruction. You learn about electricity, you learn about sort of um, vacuum pumps, you learn about uh, various mechanics and, and physics experiments what are all these things doing in conjunction, right? The way in which this page maps these activities and suggests a kind of overlap or a productive interference between them that became the fascination for me, and that became kind of what I tried to write the book to try to understand.
1: It was a fascinating introduction. Um, one thing I was particularly liked about the book was, um, was the staging of science. So, let's say, how science. Became a public spectacle, and I remember that I read some somewhere else some time ago that you know when 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 they discovered electricity, for example, everything turned into a. There were public performances, like magicians, for example, doing tricks for the public to entertain them. So I'm really interested to know about more about how how science in the 18th century was staged and how it turned into a public spectacle, which you explain in the book.
0: Yeah, Morteza, that's that's a great follow-up question, because, you know, that sort of, those lectures by de Saguier, you know, we're, that's at a moment where we've reached the point where experimental science has become a, a relatively settled sort of knowledge practice. And indeed, it's, it's understood now to be potentially quite powerfully useful. Um, de Saguier had a, You know, pretty, you know, had a remarkable sort of career as a kind of engineering consultant. He was involved in all sorts of large scale uh, public works and engineering projects where a great deal of money was at stake and it, it needed the technical expertise of a scientist like him. So he's doing these performance in public to generate interest and fascination and excitement and and familiarity, right, with the new science of the day, the new Newtonian science of the day. So, you know, we can we can sort of understand like science as performance in that moment where it begins to become what Larry Stewart talks about as public science. But really, if we look at the origins of you know, experimental natural philosophy. If we look at the origins of what we under what we would recognize looking back as science, we, we need to look at the activities of the Royal Society and the Restoration, figures like Robert Boyle, Robert Hooke, um, figures like Christopher Wren, where you had a company of experimentalists gathering together and in a lot of ways innovating in incredibly important ways, the production of knowledge by working collaboratively, by presenting experiments together in person, repeatedly talking about them and deciding together, right, about what the matters of fact really are there, what is actually being produced and known in this experiment. And that kind of corporate activity, right, Thomas Spratt writes about famously in his uh, History of the Royal Society, um, there's a, a, you know, there's just a lot of really brilliant work done in the history of science and science studies on the sort of social and performative sort of context of this. And so I became very interested in the, the, the extent to which this act, these activities were themselves a kind of performance, right? They, they required a certain amount of stagecraft and performativity. They required auditors to sort of observe and respond to these performances, and my effort was to try to tease out that aspect of it. So I like to say that this book is about science in performance, so thinking about a play like, you know, Harlequin Dr. Faustus or a play like Thomas Shadwell's The Virtuoso, which attempts to sort of put on stage a reflection of the scientific activities that are going on in culture, but I'm also interested in this book in thinking about science as a performance. And so the regimes of stagecraft and spectacle that were required in order to sort of produce matters of fact and have them witnessed and verified according to those protocols developed by the Royal Society and other practitioners of the day.
1: And, and um, I wanted to ask you another question, but you sort of answered that. So, when we talk When we talk about theater of experiment, that's the experimental science you discuss. And uh, another aspect that I'm really interested in is the emergence of that experimental science and the epistemic shift in rehearsal plays. That's uh, another fascinating part of the book. And you talk about different plays, but I'm really interested to know about this part of the book. And you discuss uh, Duke of Buckingham's play called Rehearsal in, in, in this respect. So what do you mean by this epistemic shift and how did it come about?
0: Well, you know the 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 book's interested in rehearsal plays lives in a prologue and an epilogue, and in, in some ways it's designed to be kind of orthogonal to the the kind of bot you know organizing narrative of the 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 study, which is about scientific activities as they were performed in the public theaters, and then also ways in which we can understand the practice of science itself as a kind of form of performance. Russell plays are funny things, right? Because they stage the staging of something, right? So as soon as you put on a play, that's not the play itself, but you put on somebody trying to make a play. You you have you build into this scheme a couple of things that are just really productive. One, you have the opportunity to explore the possibility that this person who's making something maybe isn't very good at it. And so it it lends itself uh, to some delightful satire and comedy. But of course, the thing that occurred to me is I think really powerful about rehearsal plays is that it also stages the spectator, right? And it stages the moment of this thing trying to come to be, as a performance and the other people around it and commenting on it. So it becomes an interesting lens into the, the sort of practices and protocols of observing and witnessing. So Buckingham's play, you know, Buckingham's a fascinating figure. He's quite, you know, very reactionary in many ways. Um, he's, you know, the play is fundamentally about overblown, you know heroic dramas, right? So it's you know it's it's fundamentally a play about bad plays. So we have Bayes putting on these sort of you know the, the you know who's a figure that kind of seems like he's probably a John Dryden figure, and he's putting on this performance that includes these ludicrous, absurd, completely broad parodies of famous hero- heroic dramas by Dryden and other performers that anybody in the audience at the time is going to recognize, oh, that's taking down the, you know, the Emperor of Morocco. Oh, that's 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 satirizing that play. So it's fundamentally a play about plays. But I guess I got interested in the way in which Buckingham is registering a belief in Bayes, this playwright, that you don't need to put together a play that makes sense. You just got to give him good stuff, right? That all you need to do is just hang out a few good songs and a few great sword fights and a couple of, you know, heart-rending sort of, uh, you know, uh, pathetic speeches. And that'll give the people what they want. And maybe it'll all come together in the end. I'm not going to worry about it too much. And so this idea, you know, there's this moment where Bayes says, you know, you'll apprehend it when you see it which is a great sort of pun there because of course you, you can apprehend something by understanding it, but of course you can apprehend something and fear it. <laughs> so there's a sense that what's coming into being here is some, somehow fearful and and disastrous and and chaotic. And that sort of faith in sort of making up as you go along uh, a kind of radical, uh, uh, you know, uh, an epistemology of, 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 you know, just the things themselves. It really chimes to me with the way Thomas Spratt talks about the you know the activities of the Royal Society, and what say somebody like Lorraine Daston is called the sort of you know the the, um, the 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 radical empiricism and the fascination with strange facts in the in the late seventeenth century, where you weren't worried about making sense of it, it was merely the accumulation of data, the accumulation of facts for its own benefit. So, you know, Spratt will talk about the work of the Royal Society as laying up a a mixed mass, undigested heaps of experiments. This kind of faith in a kind of radical, you know, sort of, uh, um, you know, induction is something that many people in culture like Buckingham are deeply suspicious of. And so the rehearsal play in Buckingham's hand seems to be talking about the larger cultural moment, right? The larger episteme in which, you know, uh, an emergent form of natural philosophy could occur where, for example, somebody like Thomas Henshaw could publish a, uh, an article on May Do. Now May Do is a reagent in traditional alchemical preparations. So one could conceivably imagine a working hypothesis that would run something like, gee, alchemists have used this stuff all these years. What's the deal with it? What does it do? What properties does it have? And do some experiments on it. But the the episteme at the time was to, that you had to disavow, right, any hypothesis, any reason why you might care to do this. And all you would do is just publish the data. And so what Henshaw does is a, a work of labor that's staggering. He must be gathering hundreds of gallons of maydew, setting up experiments where some are exposed to light and some are covered and some are this and some are that. And the, the, the article is just a bare register of these facts that to anyone's eyes surely looks ludicrously useless. And so it's that fascinating moment that I'm interested in and I'm seeing in Buckingham some deep suspicion of.
1: And uh, you you talk about this uh, concept, modest witness, and then they also talk about how uh, satire of the Restoration period, anti-retrocious satire, sort of put up a resistance towards experimental science. What do you mean by that?
0: Yeah. The, you know, the modest witness, you know, folks that might be listening to this, you know, that's one of those sort of theoretical ideas that I think has been incredibly generative. It's coming out of the work of Stephen Shapin and Simon Schaefer and the Leviathan and the air pump. Although, you know, I'm getting it. I'm also thinking about Donna Haraway's rethinking of that in her own book where, but the, I guess the way to think about this is, if you're going to found a science that is not based on the ancient authorities of Aristotle and a long line of authority in that way, if you're going to say, we're going to ground our knowledge on just the facts of nature as they are, this immediately sort of, and and we're all going to do this work and we're all going to compile these facts together and we're all going to share it. This foregrounds the problem of how can you trust this to be true. How do we verify these facts? What's the process? And so, you know, Shapen and Schaefer and, and particularly Haraway are really articulate in the way in which they they show us that the emergence of this new epistemology required a new way of life and a new and a new basically ethos. And so, in order to have the, fa- the, the facts themselves that could speak for themselves, you needed a modest witness to be there to observe them. And so the premise would be that this person would be circumspect, they would be as objective and non-biased as they possibly could, they would not make any uh, claims about causes or hypotheses on purposes beyond any, you know, except. Very reluctantly and with a tremendous amount of inductive support, the the idea would be to sort of almost erase the the, the observer in the moment of observing. And it really is a fascinating, you know, moment that Shapin and Schaefer and Haraway point us to, that we we do get the kind of emergence of something like a modern objectivity. But It's not really the objectivity, it's the ideology of it, right? And it's the belief that this could be so. And so there's just a a great deal of pushback, right, in the culture, if you go looking for it, among the anti-virtuoso satirists like Shadwell and others, who are basically saying, "Mm, you really try to represent yourself as this sort of perfectly modest, circumspect, sober, uh, you know, knowledgeable, sort of hands-off witness, but actually that's a little much and so a lot of this virtuoso satire tries to basically reinscribe the messy and conflicted um, and biased sort of you know social context of the making of science that of course would have obtained then as now but it was so important to disavow it at the time in order to sort of create a figure that could speak with authority for this new form of knowledge Um, You know, my book is in some ways structured about the emergence of the modern witness and really looking hard at the anti-virtuous satire that basically calls BS on that and tries to say, no, it's not. As you say, your self-representations can't be taken at face value, but then also charting over time, the reincorporation of the spectacle, the affective engagement, the the curiosity, the you know the all of those qualities that a modest witness was supposed to sort of disavow, I see that getting recuperated and being put to use as science we move through the eighteenth century into the Enlightenment, and so when we mo- get to the point in the twenties and the thirties where we're starting to see something recognizable as enlightenment public science a new form of witness seems to emerge and i i sort of talk about that person as an eager spectator and and the you know my book is trying to understand that that movement
1: and and um, i guess with some of these spectators, they sort of in terms of their speculations, they sort of took them too far this there and and then you you talk about some other plays in your book that offered a sort of corrective to these maybe over-speculations, political, theatrical, or experimental uh, or over-speculations, and Afrobenz is an example. Uh, c- can you talk how these plays offer the corrective to these over-speculations?
0: Well, you know, good first half of the book at least is, is looking at a series of plays that are the same kind of play, right? Um, A satire of a scientist or a play that includes a satiric portrait of a scientist and thinking about why they don't line up, why they seem to find different things that are funny or problematic about that scientist figure, or why, you know, the criticism changes to approbation over time. And so... You know, if we look at Shadwell's Virtuoso and M- Madame Fickle, which is a, I talk about as being a kind of, in a lot of ways, a pair of that play, but also a kind of, you know, unstitching of it. If we look at, uh, you know, Three Hours After Marriage, written by Pope and and, and John Gay, uh, and our John Arbuthnot, The Scriblerians, and also looking at that, again, w- with another play by Susanna Saint-Lever that that seems to sort of unstitch it or replay it Um, a bold stroke for a wife if we look at afro ben's emperor of the moon like all of these i try to situate right in their moment politically culturally and try to unpick and unpack what's going on in those plays such that i'm trying to make the case they speak intimately to the particular configurations of science and politics and gender politics at the time that they're performed um so they're i you know I think for the purposes of this discussion, I guess my point is that these setters are always making sort of tactical, I think they are always making tactical, specific, deeply local interventions in the culture of their time because that's kind of the nature of the playhouse. You know, that, that's the nature of the new plays this season. You know, that's, that's what they do.
1: Uh, but, but it's not like a reputation of natural philosophy, these
0: points, uh, right? You know that that's the thing, and that's always been the question in virtuoso satire: is this is this attacking uh, real scientists, or, it's, or is it just attacking the dabblers? And if any, I kind of I, I tend to think that that's maybe taking them off the hook. And I don't think, I think it's a mistake to assume that there was a clear cohort of real scientists at the time and a bunch of amateurs and and dilettantes and virtuosi that were running around. And those were the subjects, uh, you know, the targets. Um, Many people that, you know, I I respect a great deal do tend to think about it that way, but I I think that there, you can't separate them. And so you need to sort of grapple with the fact that Shadwell is really trying in, in Gimcrack to make a, a kind of recognizable composite portrait of Robert Hooke and Robert Boyle, such that when Robert Hooke finally goes to the playhouse after all his friends are needling him to go, uh, you know, frenemies, I guess is a better way to put it. Um, he goes there and he writes in his journal, Wendica Me Deus, people almost pointed like the idea that they everybody knew the joke was on him. Now, Robert Hooke could not be more important in the history of science. Um, but that night he was made out to be the fool. So there are some plays, I think, where the, the dynamic shift, like in bens Emperor of the Moon, you know, uh there there's a sense that, you know, the, the Royal Society emerged in Royal Patent. Uh, I make the case that, you know, Charles II, as part of the restoration, restores the theater. He believes that that's a a crucial, you know, he enjoys it. But I think it's also a crucial sort of cultural institution for the kind of society he wants to inculcate. And he also founds the Royal Society, again, as a sort of place for where folks can gather, um, enjoy themselves, uh, you know, engage in edifying sort of discourses um, that are that are explicitly in, in rural society's case, supposed to be non-political, non-sectarian, the, by the time of the exclusion crisis, the Popish plot, you know, the, the time where the, you know, the English, the English crown, and, and the, the English government has come to a, a tremendous sort of uh, crisis. the, the way in which in, say, the 1660s and 1670s, you could say, oh, this, all these virtuosi sort of getting fascinated with the spectacles of science, how harmless. There's some sense that that sort of spectating is, and per- potentially the credulity that, that goes with that, as I talk about. You know, there's some sense that that, that could be suspect and problematic. So, my feeling is that Ben, is, as a, a Tory writer, is, is trying to sort of retrain or, 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 or correct, offer a kind of corrective to that practice. So not purely discredit it, but suggest that it need, it needs to be reformed. Uh, and again, in that chapter, I kind of try to map that effort, not just to Ben in the Playhouse, but also to some activities that the Royal Society itself is doing at the time. Um, to the extent that I'm successful, I don't know. But but again, it, that it seemed like that moment at the you know in the exclusion crisis that seemed like the way in which the the configuration of the, and the political valences of natural philosophy had shifted a bit. And so from, from Ben's perspective, this was a practice that was valuable, but it needed to be restrained. And you know, unbounded credulity, a, a, a febrile immersion, spectacles is something that needs to be cured. And so that's that's kind of what I think how her play comes down on it. But then you know you have later plays like Bold Stroke for Wife, and Natural or 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 the Bassett Table by Saint lever You know, natural philosophy is understood to be a, a, a positive good, you know, and it and it and it's aligned with good uh, ascendant Whig values at that time. You know, if we jump forward to the, the teens and the twenties, uh, w- when I was
1: reading the book, I was. So I I, I did my studies in literature myself and I kind of felt embarrassed that a lot of the plays you mentioned I hadn't heard of. So you talk about like these really famous, uh, these important plays, three hours after marriage and a bold stroke for a wife and how um, scientific folly is reflected in these plays. So I'm sure our listeners would also love to hear about a couple of these plays. So it would be great if you could talk about one of them, maybe just briefly and say how they reflect sure. these scientific follies
0: well first of all you know there, there's just an awful lot to read and these these are you know it's it's not like not having heard of tom jones or, some, or clarissa or something you know these plays were the the fun of the year right they they were ephemeral uh, you know it 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 my point is that you know we can we can re- we could look at like what goes on in the playoffs, what was popular in a season. We could look at who was playing what parts we could look at what other plays also had those characters those those actors playing analogous roles. Can we think about sort of how these two plays might talk to each other it's a It's a style of doing literary criticism right and and, and cultural studies that is not necessarily better or worse than anything else, but it, but it's certainly not about sort of making sure that we, you know, we, we pay attention to the great works, right. Cause uh, great works are great, but I'm so interested in the world that the literature reflects. And for that reason, the, the theater, and in, in many ways, the weirder the play, the better, right. Um, is just so generative and interesting to me. Um, so, you know, if I was going to recommend a, a play to consider that folks hadn't red I mean it boy the you know shadows Virtuoso is is just stupendous um that's back in sixteen seventy six it's it's a classic sort of humorous comedy it has four f- just fantastic fools in it um that's a wonderful play but you know like the there the, 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 i I guess you know the I'm, I'm having trouble answering the, the question because I don't just want to give a plot summary. I guess what I'm trying to get across is that, you know, the, so many of these plays are deeply rich. When you start to understand, like, how they talk to the world that they're trying to respond to.
1: And we better not spoil the the plays. I'm sure some people would want to read them. Anyhow, um, and... and... And these these public spectacles in the London in the in the seventeen twenties served as the first
0: example of uh, mass entertainment. Right, uh, you know th- that, and actually, I I, I would I think I'd, that's a great thing to talk about um, because this is you know if you know if if three hours after marriage right this this really very, very funny play written by, you know, Alexander Pope and, and John Gay and John Arbuthnot as part of their kind of Scooterian collaboration. You know, if somebody hadn't heard of that or read that before you go read it, fantastic. But there are definitely people studying that and talking about it. Um, What I got fascinated in is, is something that, that at least when I started writing the book, there wasn't a lot of interest or attention paid to. And it, it, was so interesting to me and it seems so central and now and of course you know there there was Larry Stewart's book about you know Newtonian public science and and lectures and he does it it's a really nice piece of history that really fleshes that out pretty well and certainly somebody like Simon During writes you know kind of from a, a slightly longer lens and a longer perspective he's got a great book talking about what he calls the magic assemblage you know the sort of public performances of of science and magic you know from the you know the 1600s through Lumiere and Edison, right? You know, he kind of connects this long history spectacle. It's a fabulous piece. Um, But like, what became central to me in the book for chapter four was the activities of lecturers like John Theophilus de Sagoyer or like Stephen de Maimbray or like, um, you know, uh, Francis Hawksby or Benjamin Martin. The, you know, what you have, right, is a A a rapidly urbanizing London that is also rapidly, you know, becoming uh, capitalist. Right. So we're we're starting to sort of deploy capital into large scale development projects, and those projects need expertise and engineering and so forth. And people like somebody like John Theophilus de Silly or Hawksby are are stepping up to be you know kind of the experts and consultants on this and how do they sort of attain that status? Well, they... They basically made a trade in public lectures, and so it was very common. There were there were all sorts of different lectures, also all across town, in with different specialties. Uh, fancy rooms for fancy folks with big money. Um, less so in other places. Uh, things more steered towards practical navigation, or mathematics, or insurance and actuarial studies, mathematics lectures in the city to sort of feed those emerging sort of um, uh, you know that the emerging industries of that kind of knowledge work. Um, in And it was absolutely a thrilling thing, right? So someone like de Seguier is, is running a course where you'd show up once a week and he would perform experiments for you. You would get to see how an air pump worked. You would, There were all sorts of famous, you know, experiments that would get done. Um, a lot of folks have seen the wonderful painting by Thomas Wright of Darby, uh, Experiment in an Air Pump, that scene actually takes place in a uh, a wealthy family's home where they've brought in an itinerant lecture to give a performance to the family. But something like that was was going on well before that in sort of coffee houses and lecture halls in London. And the clearly people were learning about science. There's there's no doubt about that. But I think what was more powerful is that they were learning to be enthusiastic and supportive of science, g- thrilling to the spectacles, um, and basically these practitioners accruing cultural capital for the work that they were doing that could itself then be traded for real capital, right? And so de Sagoyer is working as a you know consultant to James Bridges on various sort of, you know, uh, Large-scale sort of uh, redevelopment projects and, and irrigation projects. He's also running these lectures and making money on that. He's publishing popular texts and uh, and and he's also taking on uh, uh, tuition students where he's boarding them, kind of training them a bit in this science. So it, it's a really fascinating node, right? Of of uh, on the one hand. The sort of emergence and codification of, of kind of Enlightenment Newtonian science, but also this sort of building of a liter a scientifically literate public that would be then disposed to support this right and and to patronize it.
1: And uh, another part of the book is about Newtonian lectures and the role of Newtonian lectures in this um, enterprise. And I also talk about. Economic gains of those lectures. Can you uh, elaborate on that on that part?
0: Well, I guess I was trying to say that in my last answer. I maybe I didn't kind of get it across as well as I could. Um, but the you know we we have published syllabi, right? We have we have accounts from folks that have been there, and a lot part of what I've been doing, part of what I did for this project, and what I'm been thinking about doing for my next is to try to better understand you know exactly how science was integrated into everyday life among at least the sort of you know the the educated literate classes in in the enlightenment england and so you know one night you might go to the opera one night you might go to the theater one night you might go see demand bray Give a, give a performance or Hawksby give a performance of the new, you know, uh, all of these great scientific sort of uh, experiments that were so interesting and thrilling, you know, uh, you know, uh, fascinating electricity performances or experiments of like luminescence that you could create with a, with a, out of a, with a, a glass globe that was evacuated and then sort of uh, agitated in a certain way. There were all of these sort of, uh your performances that were thrilling to sort of be a part of and then also to to go home and try to do yourself and so the current project we're working on really zooms in on microscopy uh because that was a science that promised tremendous spectacles and wonders um but it was also didn't require a tremendous amount of apparatus um and so it becomes really um Quite a big, you know, a, a, a widely practiced leisure time past uh, pastime, and I'm trying to understand who is doing it and why, and of course trying to understand the gender dynamics there. And that you know, as you know, science moves into the lecture halls and moves into the sort of you know popular press that's that's you know uh, directed at non-specialists. It's it's increasingly uh, addressing itself to women, and I think that that becomes a, a really fascinating angle on this.
1: Yeah, I guess that uh, the, the, the changes in gender ideologies is, is a very important part of it. And you earlier mentioned Donna Haraway. There have been people who have written about, um, about, about science from a feminist perspective and the history of science from a feminist perspective, which is something you also talk about in the book uh, in terms of the rise of modern science and its relation with gender ideologies.
0: Yeah, it's you know the 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 final chapter, you know again it's you know the, the book is you know is again it's 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 about a thing, right? <laughs> Much of it is about science satires on stage, right? And so that final chapter kind of is structured around an investigation of three plays and three different sort of presentations of a female science enthusiast. And, you know, we begin in the, the restoration where it's just the, you know, it, it's actually an adaptation of Moliere and, you know, it brings over that misogynist, uh, sort of critique of the press use, but in, in Thomas Wright's version of this in the Restoration, it gets in England. the The specific false knowledge that she professes is is natural philosophy, and that's made out to be absurd. And I think in that case, it's doing two things. One, it's 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 reckoning with some women that were in, engaged in this work. I mean, we, you know, this is the the ugly legacies that were, are undoing, you know, there were, there are many significant practitioners in natural philosophy, especially in natural history throughout this period, whose stories were partially told or, or, or scrambled or misstated or completely obliviated. Um, so we do know that this, you know, science is never a purely masculine male activity. Um, that said, you know, these, these plays were, Maybe targeting some of those well-known, at that point, practitioners, but it was also sort of suggesting that there was something just out of bounds about science itself, that it was gender flip, the kind of curiosity, uh, spectatorship, you know, the men, the, the male... You know practitioners wanted to make themselves out as these modest witnesses, but there was a, a sort of, you know, effeminized curiosity and and enthrallment there that was always part of the critique of the scientist. And so we see that in that early version of of of, of the virtuoso satire. But as time goes on, right, we're we're noticing on the one hand, like when Kali Sibber, again, adapts Moliere's play, and he calls it The Refusal, basically refuses to engage with natural philosophy. It's just not something that's made fun of in the play at all. And I think that that's because at that point, you know, natural philosophy has become sort of installed in a kind of mainstream cornerstone of the, you know, the sort of Whig commercial culture that's that's emergent at that time. Um but then you you know you you look at a play like the Bassett Table that has a a scientific woman in it who is potential you know the, who's the the subject of some ridicule for sure right there are characters in that play who find her scientific interests a bit loony um, there's a scene where she's trying to be wooed by this perfectly handsome completely conventional guy um, and he's trying to get her attention he's trying to flirt with her and she's happy to have him around, you know, he's nice enough, he's a handsome fella, Um, but she's more interested in her work. And he thinks it's a little wacky and he, but the fascinating thing is the play is written in such a way to suggest that actually her interests are valid. And, you know, while, if anything, I feel like the, the male suitor is the one that is held up to ridicule here for, you know, him you know, flirting with her and trying as she's pouring over her researches, trying to say, well, there you are, looking at the flow of blood and the tail of a fish in your microscope. I'm interested in, you know, the flow of blushes on your sweet cheek. I'm not sure that it 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 really registers as he's right and she's wrong especially since the end of the play she's able to make a match she's able to sort of be integrated into the you know heteronormative sort of patriarchal order by settling into a a a real marriage but she's able to continue her scientific work right she's threatened with having all of her instruments destroyed but that doesn't happen so i think that you know what we're seeing there is a recognition that not only is science sort of conventionally now sort of a, a critical and respected practice in culture, but that women practitioners are a crucial part of that. And so, you know, there's in that chapter, I do look at, you know, what's a really wonderful library of, of popular works addressed to women that, you know, encourage them to be curious about nature, to learn about natural philosophy, to do natural historical, you know, investigations. And that's just the 1740s, right? You know, but if you, you know, and this is out of the scope of my book, but, you know, jump ahead to the, you know, the early, you know, 1800s, we've got, you know, many, many women in, involved in in natural historical work, you know, do, doing floras, collecting algae, like all this wonderful stuff. And, My case is, I guess I'd try to make the case that one of the things that shifts is that science, natural philosophy itself, discovers or comes to accept that it needs eager spectators, right? It doesn't need a modest witness. It needs people who are effectively engaged, curious, putting themselves into this work, getting thrilled by it, because that is productive, right, of the kind of, you know, kind of... uh, social uh, uh, you know kind of social standing it's it's trying social uh, footprint it's trying to achieve and so i make the case that like the the refashioning of the ideal auditor of science it gets refashioned in the image of the of the female science enthusiast
1: uh, and and then that figure of uh, modest witness that you mentioned at the beginning turning to a more a feminized figure
0: yeah i think so there's a value in that stereotypically feminized the elements and it's and i i make the case it's not just that you know the the sort of the the casual the curious the the polite interested the the amateurs you know could be and should be should include women but also should sort of engage with science in that sort of more affective engagement, but there's also a sense that like elite science itself kind of torques itself. It, it reforms itself around forms of knowledge making that are not as austere as the, the old canons of the modest witness at all. And so I'm thinking about, you know, new, you know, uh, you know, Stephen Humphreys and, you know, uh, you know, innovations in in chemistry in the later, you know, the turn of the 19th century um, it's, it's a, it's a fascinating transformation, and I I hope I I did it justice in the book.
1: Uh, before we end this conversation, just one final question: Is there another any other project or book you're working on?
0: Yeah, you know it's uh it's it's cooking. It's been a while gestating, but um you know I think that I wanted to go deeper into the culture of science. And so this next book doesn't have much to say about at all about the theater. Doesn't have much to say at all about literature per se, right? So, in uh, what I'm looking at is primarily the why people did microscope work in the period, Um, the the interest in the subvisible world, the sort of regimes of spectatorship, but also like the haptic and bodily engagements of this work and the way in which it was to a way I don't think we've really understood, deeply involved in various sort of, um, you know, drawing and picture-making sort of apparatuses to sort of fix rec- and record and and to kind of reintegrate into one's kind of proprioceptive kind of sense of the world, um, that all of that work going on is super fascinating to me. And so I'm, I'm getting very interested in a figure like Benjamin Martin, who appears just sort of, Briefly as a, as a lecturer in, in chapter four, but he's so interesting as somebody that's really promoting microscope work and, and, and really talking about it in amazing ways, talking about what was so fascinating, but what was also so disruptive and, and displacing about these engagements with the subvisible world. And so that's really where the next project is going. It's called Enlightenment Visibilities. Um, and it, it's going to have a whole section on microscope work, and it's it's also going to have a whole section on the calculus because I'm I'm super interested in the emergence of uh, a science of the infinitesimal. Um, but that's the story for another day.
1: Mm, that, that, that sounds like a very fascinating project, and I certainly hope to be able to talk to you about that book sometime soon uh, on New Books Network. Thank you very, very much for your time and uh, for talking about your wonderful book here with us.
0: Thank you so much, Montez.
1: I appreciate it.